You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, this morning, we are going to try to cover all of Mark 14. And there are a lot of verses in Mark 14. In order to do it, we need to remember where we have been in Mark 11 to 13. Okay? So Mark 11 to 13 has centered on Jesus' condemnation of the temple and its leadership. It's been, it's been a chapter full of teaching, uh, of debate, of discussion, of symbolic actions. Like if you remember, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He's symbolically riding on the royal donkey with an entourage from Galilee proclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David. He's he pulls on this Old Testament imagery of Israel as a fig tree, and he curses an actual fig tree that's not bearing any fruit, and then he symbolically cleanses the temple and condemns those who have turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. And, and these symbolic actions lead to confrontations with the Jewish leaders, and they, they challenge Jesus' authority. And they attempt to drive a wedge between him and his supporters. Like, are you going to side with, uh, uh, with the Romans or are you going to side with the people? And they're trying to expose the absurdity of his belief in the resurrection. They're trying to trap him. And Jesus, not so subtly, condemns their rejection of God and God's servants, the prophets, and his beloved son. And he promises judgment on the Jewish leaders in the form of a parable. And then he warns about the scribes as a group. He builds a connection with a single scribe who is sincerely seeking. He praises a widow. He highlights the promises uh, uh, of the Old Testament, some puzzling promises uh, about the Messiah who is somehow both the son of David and the Lord of David. And so then it ends in Mark 13, as Pastor Jonathan preached last week, with this uh, big sermon, his final sermon which announces the impending judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. Not a stone will be left. And he encourages his followers, stay awake. Stay awake. So, Mark 11 to 13 has been all about the temple and has been filled with this symbolic action, this confrontation, this teaching, this sermon. But if you notice, there's not a lot of action. Like, not a lot actually happens. Instead, what's been happening for three chapters is the tension has been building. It's just been winding up. Every time Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians, it ratchets up and it ratchets up and it ratchets up. And every time he does a symbolic action, it ratchets up. And every time he preaches a sermon, it ratchets up. And the tension is just building and nothing's really happening. It's just all right there zoomed in as the tension ratchets up and then... Here in Mark 14, all of that tension begins to be unleashed, and things begin to happen, one after another, after another, after another. Mark 14 is a chapter of action. We're at the point in the story where all of the characters are in place. They're all in their their spot, and then we start checking them off. They're there, they're there, they're there, and then somebody gives a signal and go, and then it's like ping pong balls bouncing off. Action to reaction, another action to reaction, bang, 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 all the way to the end of the book. 
So what I want to do is I want to briefly walk through all of these actions. I want to, to see the action as it unfolds, and then I want to draw out two encouragements for us this morning. So let's begin in actually Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. So this is after that sermon, and we're given a time marker. It's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's probably Wednesday of Holy Week. And I think that Mark 14, 1 to 2 brings an end to the preceding section. It's still focusing on that confrontation with the Jewish leaders. Um, it brings it to, to a close, two days before Passover. So they've had these debates, these confrontations, now this big sermon, and now the chief priests and the scribes are plotting, how do we get rid of Jesus? How do we kill him? And how do we do it secretly? And this is important because the plotting that they've been doing has been going on for chapters, since chapter 3 re-picked up in chapter 12. But the challenge for the Jewish leaders politically is that they can't just arrest Jesus while he's out teaching publicly because he's got a lot of supporters. And they're worried if we go in there with, with uh, swords and, and, and guards and we say, you're under arrest, there might be a riot. His supporters, the poor, those who he has ministered to might just rise up and it could get really ugly and you don't want to let these, these uh, Jewish leaders are experts at managing things. Don't let it get out of hand. Make sure we know what's happening. And so they're plotting, they're conspiring, they're planning, how do we get Jesus? And that's part of that tension. It brings that tension uh, to a point. Next section, Jesus anointed at Bethany. The next section, I wish I could spend time on this. We, we zoom over, here, here's, the, here's the plotting. Now cut over here, Jesus reclining at table in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. A woman comes in and she pours expensive ointment on Jesus' head. And I would love to spend some time and reflect on this passage and, and what this woman is doing, what she thinks she's doing, how that relates to the death of Jesus, how that relates to helping the poor because the disciples are very concerned that she just wasted all of this expensive ointment and Jesus rebukes them. But I'm not going to have time to do that because Mark 14 is a very long chapter. All I want you to notice is that one of the key actions is as the tension begins to unwind, one of the key actions in this passage is a woman anointing Jesus for burial, getting him ready to die. So they're plotting, we wanna arrest and kill him. She's acting and getting him ready to die. Now we jump again. We've got the, the uh, leaders plotting, she's anointing, now we jump to Judas. We're in verse, where are we, 10. Judas Iscariot, not been a major figure in the Gospel of Mark. You all know who he is. But he's not been a major character. He's one of the 12, and he goes to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And they hear it. They're glad. They promise to give him some money. And so now Judas is looking for the right opportunity. And so Judas moves into action. The high priest, all they've been doing is plotting. How are we going to get him? And now here's the opportunity. Judas is going to give them the way because here's what Judas knows. Judas knows where Jesus will be. Judas knows who will be with Jesus which means they can time the arrest so there's not a lot of people. When he's alone, when he's by himself, when there's nobody else around, then we can get him, we can whisk him away, and there will be no riot. So the opportunity has presented itself to them. And so Judas finds a way to make a little cash by betraying Jesus. So the leaders are plotting, the woman's anointing, Judas is betraying, and now here we are, it's Passover. First day of unleavened bread, Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover feast. This is a Jewish 
feast. And if you notice, if you remember when the triumphal entry happened and Jesus was on his way in and he sent his disciples ahead and said, hey, go find the guy with the donkey and walk up to him and just say, the Lord has need of this. And the guy will go, here you are. And then he'll just go out and, and, we'll, and it's just all there. It's just like that. He says, go find the guy with the water jar. Follow him. Whatever house he goes into, go in there. That's weird, right? Just walking into somebody's house. The master of the house will be standing there. Say to him, the teacher is looking for a place to celebrate the, the Passover. It's upstairs. And you will walk upstairs and there will be a feast. Finish getting it ready. Now, this is a very significant kind of thing. The disciples at this point must be thinking, this is getting a little eerie. Because Jesus sends them to prepare something, and wherever they go to prepare it, they find the preparations have already begun without them, as though somebody else is orchestrating all of this. And Jesus is aware of these specific details. We're going to come back to that. Now, the Passover meal, one of the functions of the Passover meal in this, in this chapter is to highlight a key element of the story, the betrayal of Jesus by one of his own. And this is new in Mark's gospel. I want you to think about it. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has had lots of opponents. The, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. There's been lots of people who have tried to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, but they've all been outsiders. They're not part of his group. They're out there fighting him. Now we see, sitting at the table, as he dips his food in the cup, and as he eats this meal, there is someone in the room who will betray him. The enemies are in the midst of the disciples. One of the 12 who have been with him from the beginning, who are sharing table fellowship with him, will now betray him. And so as the disciples eat and drink, Jesus gives new meaning to this old meal. And after dinner, they head to the Mount of Olives. So now we're picking up there uh, in verse 26. They sing a hymn, they head to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus now begins to tell them. He has some hard words for them. Not only will one of those who dip uh, his, his hand in the, in the cup with Jesus betray him, but all of them will flee. Every one of you is going to run away. When the moment of truth comes, when all of this tension finally is just unleashed, you will not be there to see it because you will run away. And they, of course, protest, not us, Lord. And not only that, not only will they scatter to the winds, Peter insists, I'm not gonna. They may all run away, but I'm not gonna. And so Jesus singles him out and says, actually, Peter, you're right. You're not just gonna run away. One of you will betray me. All of you will flee from me. And Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, twice. Again, specificity and detail. All of them say, no, I won't deny you, but Jesus has promised it. So the leaders are plotting. The woman anoints him. Judas is betraying him. The disciples are eating and drinking, and they will flee, and Peter will deny, and now we're in Gethsemane, the garden near the Mount of Olives. Now, this is interesting. This scene here echoes a scene we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember in Mark chapter 9 when we had the transfiguration of Jesus, when he went up on the mountain and God revealed his glory? 
And that scene, Jesus went with Peter and James and John up a mountain, and God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, unveiled the glory of Jesus. Here again, we're on a mountain, Peter, James, and John, but now, instead of a voice from heaven proclaiming, Jesus is my beloved son, instead of that, the only sounds in the garden are the sobs of Jesus and the snores of the disciples. It's just like that earlier scene with one major difference. Instead of God saying, I love you, listen to him, silence except for sobs and snores. Three times they fall asleep. Three times Jesus comes and says, can you not just stay awake? But no, the spirit is, filling, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And when Jesus wakes them up for the third time, he says, all right. The hour's here. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And I wonder whether Mark intends us to remember back to the beginning of his gospel. Do you remember in Mark 2? Jesus said, I didn't come to call uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so the one who came to call sinners is now betrayed into their hands. And they have him. So Judas comes. And again, notice in verse uh, 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. Again and again in this chapter, it underlines that. He's one of the 12. He's one of the 12. He's one of Jesus' guys, and he's the one who's doing it. So they come with a crowd carrying clubs and swords, and then he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And we see the ugliness of sin, right? The ugliness of sin, the deep evil, the deep selfishness, that can hide behind a smiling face, that can walk up to a man that you are condemning to death, smile at him, kiss him, and then watch as the soldiers take him away. Judas betrays Jesus, not with an angry accusation in public. He's a fraud. Not with a condemnation. He's a blasphemer, but with a kiss. In the midst of the betrayal, Jesus does something else. Notice uh, in verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out uh, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Like, what's with all of the armor here, guys? Day after day, I was with you. I've seen your face and your face and your face in the temple. I was teaching and you did not seize me. None of you tried to arrest me in public. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And then the disciples, just as Jesus said, all left him and fled. And so Jesus is drawing attention here in the midst of this to the plotting, the scheming, the cowardice, and the fear of the, of the Jewish leaders of the crowds. You're having to do this at night, and I'm not going to stop you. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. So the disciples flee, just as Jesus said. We have this unnamed young man, verse 51, who flees. Many scholars take that to be Mark himself. He's saying, I was there. I was one of the ones who ran away. Jesus is then taken before the council where the, the plots become accusations. Accusers, so look in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest. All the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now we got him. There was no uproar, but now we actually have to nail him to the wall. 
but they found none. They got, no, they got nothing. Many for, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him say, I'm going to destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. There's contradictions. And so all of these accusations are about Jesus' hostility to the temple, which we've seen in the last chapters. But they can't get it right. Even after all of the plotting, even after all of the scheming, they still might not be able to get Jesus because their plot is falling apart. Because you can't actually convict him unless the accusers agree. Because on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a charge must be established. And if they're contradicting themselves, they can't do it. Because they're sticklers for the law, remember? And then something remarkable happens. I think this is one of the most significant things in the entire chapter. Jesus has been silent in the midst of all of these accusations, just letting them tie themselves in knots, trying to get him. And then finally, the chief priest, seeing that it's getting out of hand, looks at Jesus and says, don't you have anything to say to these? Do you have any answer to these charges? And Jesus just stands there silently. And then the chief priest looks at Jesus and just says straight up, are you the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus, having been silent the whole time, looks up at him and says, I am. And then quotes Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, identifies himself with the Son of Man who is coming in glory. And the Jewish leaders fall into a rage. He tears his robe, calls for his execution for blasphemy. That's a really significant moment right there is that the accusations are falling apart. He asks Jesus directly, and Jesus finally speaks. We'll come back to it in a moment. And then Jesus is led away with blows. They're, they're beating him as they leave. Final scene of the chapter. Peter, witnessing this trial, is accused of being a collaborator. And just as Jesus said, he denies his Lord. First he tries to pretend like he doesn't understand. I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Who, who did you say I know? I don't know. Him, no. But they persist. And Peter, out of fear, becomes more blatant. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And then the rooster crows. And he remembers the night before. And Peter falls down and he weeps. And this is the last time we will see Peter in the book. He will be mentioned one more time in a few weeks. Pay attention to when he's mentioned. Just flag it here. A couple weeks you'll hear what, what happens to Peter. Because at the end, all the last thing Peter does is cry in this book. So that's the action of Mark 14. Chief priests plotting, accusing, a woman anointing Jesus for burial, Judas betraying him behind a false face, the disciples eating and drinking with Jesus, sleeping, fleeing in fear, and Peter denying him and weeping in the courtyard. That's what the passage has done as everything spins into motion. And that action will continue into the next chapter. But what are we going to do with it today? And I just want to draw attention to two major elements for your encouragement today, okay? And they're both going to be from Gethsemane. Here we are in dark Gethsemane. And I want you to do it. I want you to remember a few things. If you've been here for this series, I want you to think back over the book. Remember what Mark has shown us about Jesus. Over and over again, we have seen Jesus' sovereignty and his authority. He has power over demons. He has power over nature. He has power over sickness and disease. He even has power over death. Again and again, we've seen the power of Jesus' words come out of him. Peace, 
Be still. I will. Be clean. Little girl, get up. And as we've preached these passages as pastors about the power of Jesus, we have encouraged you to believe in Jesus and to pray and act accordingly. Like this, this is Pastor Jonathan, when he was preaching on the calming of the storm. We come to Jesus asking, do you even care? I'm not going to do it. I'm just, just, that was a mess. Was... And the, do you even care, Jesus? And the answer is yes, Jesus does care. He cares for you. And even when it seems like he doesn't, when it seems like he's nowhere in sight or that he's off doing other things, this story reminds us that Jesus cares. He meets his people in their need. He shows up for them in power. In answer to the disciples' question, Jesus says to them and to us, I am here and I care. So when you come to Jesus, don't simply pray. Jesus, grab a bucket. Don't mumble your prayers. Ask big, bold things of God, not just for others, but even for yourself. Jesus can do more than grab a bucket. So ask him to do more. In humble faith, you can ask him to stop the storm. Or we could jump to a few weeks ago. Jesus is teaching about prayer, and he says, ask for big things. Say to the mountain, be thrown into the sea, it'll be done. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Pray big prayers because Jesus is real, Jesus is sovereign, he is powerful, and he cares. Go to him. Like Bartimaeus, Lord, I just want to receive my sight. Boom. Go to him like the leper. If you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. Go to him like the father of that boy with the unclean spirit. Even like this, I believe, help my unbelief. Done. And even if you can't speak, like if you're deaf and you're mute, you can't talk. Go to him and hear him say to you, eyes, mouth, ears, be opened. And even if you can't walk, get your friends to put you on a mat, climb up top, on top of the roof, lower you through the ceiling and hear him say to you, take up your mat, go home. Ask him to do impossible things. And those are the right lessons to be drawn from all of those passages. It's exactly why they're in the Bible. But every time we've seen that power and every time we've made that encouragement, I imagine that some of you, maybe all of you, have had a little check in the back of your head that says, what? but what about when he doesn't? What about the unanswered prayers? What about when we pray and we beg in faith and it's not done for us and what we ask for is not ours and the storm doesn't stop? What about that? And now with that in mind, here we are in dark Gethsemane. Jesus is greatly distressed. He's greatly troubled. He's full of sorrow and we read this. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He prayed, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And here's why this matters to you. This is the most faithful human being who ever lived. Beloved son of a happy father, and he is coming to his, belo- his happy father, and he's believing. All things are possible for you, God. I believe that. I know that. And he is coming praying a big, bold prayer. Remove this cup from me. Let this hour pass. And God doesn't take the cup. He doesn't let the hour pass. You remember that man who came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus looked back at him and said, I will. Jesus comes to his father here and says, Father, if you will, let it pass. And God looks back at him and says, I won't. We have to see the whole picture here. This entire book has been telling us to pray big prayers, even for ourselves, to pray for our deep longings, to pray for our deep desires, to pray in our anguish, in our distress, and our fear. Pray, and sometimes the storm stops, and sometimes the cross comes. That's the first thing I want you to see in the midst of all of this action. Mark's gospel is compelling us to pray big prayers in faith, And it also shows the biggest and most faithful prayer that went unanswered. It shows us more. Second thing for our encouragement. Mark's gospel here in 14 shows us Jesus. Do you remember the specificity and detail that I mentioned? Like the preparations for the Passover, everything's already ready. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, one of you will betray me. All of you will flee from me, and Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Amazing specificity. He also says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This was in a book. This was prophesied. This is happening according to plan. The hour has come. It's right now. I know they're coming. Boom, there they are. I was with you in the temple, and you didn't seize me, but... Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Do you remember all of that? In the midst of all of this action, as the tension in this story is uncorked and plots turn to betrayal and betrayal turns to accusation and the disciples are confused and then they're sad and then they're sleepy and then they're fearful, in the midst of all of that action, Jesus is standing in the center of it like a conductor in the midst of an orchestra. All of this is planned. None of this is surprising. Every detail has been destined just like this. So much so that even when the case against Jesus is falling apart, because the witnesses can't agree, Jesus breaks his silence and gives them all of the ammunition they need to execute him. You get what happened there? Like, they're fumbling with the gun trying to like getting ready to shoot him, and he's like, no, no, stop down. Let me hear. You got you to gotta take the safety off. Just like that. Now shoot. Not even their ineptitude at railroading an innocent man is going to keep him from his mission. The scriptures will be fulfilled. And his mission includes a full identification with us 
in every aspect of what it means to be human, including our sufferings and our sorrows. Not just the physical pain he's about to endure on the cross. That's really important. But here in Gethsemane, we see Jesus joining us in the mental and emotional agony of feared pain. Like there's a, there's a particular kind of a mental and emotional pain and tor- turmoil that comes when we're anticipating something bad is going to happen. Something bad is going, like that itself, not before it gets here, just the waiting, knowing it's coming or fearing that it's coming, that is painful. It's hard. And Jesus says, I'm going there too. In that emotional pain, we cry out to God for help. We say, God, take the cup, let the hour pass. And sometimes God answers in exactly the way we want. He says, little girl, get up. And sometimes we pray anguished prayers over and over and over, and the evil thing still comes. Like, it's, it's one thing to actually submit when it comes. Like, when it gets here, you're just like, all right, it's here, I got to take it. But this prayer shows that the anguish that comes before the affliction is also part of God's will for us, and therefore Jesus has to join us in it. Now, it's a great mystery. You're like, how in the world does Jesus, who's sovereign over all of this, fear it? Like, according to his human nature, according to his divine nature, he's the son of God. So how does all of that work? I don't know. Couldn't diagram it for you on a board. But let's not let how it works distract us from the fact that it does. We need to see Jesus' anguish on his way to the cross and what it means for us. And here's what it means. Have you ever turned to your friends or your family for help in your need and found that they were asleep or too busy or otherwise preoccupied? Jesus too. Has has the institutional church and its leaders, the leaders of God's people, have they ever turned their back on you and wronged you? Jesus too. Have the governing authorities whether through neglect or maybe even worse motives, have they ever been unable or unwilling to help you? Jesus too. And have you, when the friends and family are gone, when the church has turned its back, when the state is nowhere to be seen, in the midst of all that, have you, as your last resort, turned to God in desperation for help and said, God, help me, take the cup from me, and had your request denied? Jesus too. This is fundamental to the human experience. To be human is to have moments, sometimes long moments, when every rope breaks just as you seize it. When every door is slammed shut right as you get there. And you find yourself in the darkness, in distress, and you ask for relief, and God says no. That's what it means to be human, and Jesus is fully human. Some of you are in, your, in the midst of your own Gethsemanes. You're distressed, you're troubled, full of sorrow, and you're pleading and begging God for relief, and the only thing louder than your sobs at night when nobody else is around, the only thing louder than your sobs is the silence of God's 
I won't. I won't. And as a result, you feel yourself to be completely and utterly abandoned and alone. And the message of this passage to you this morning is you are not alone. When you see the anguish and distress of Jesus while he is perfectly conducting the orchestra of his death, you can realize that for the Christian, you can never be utterly alone in your Gethsemane, ever. Whatever road you're on, it's not an untrodden path. There is one who has gone before you, and he is with you still. Which brings us to this table. You have to learn to bring your Gethsemane to the table. Because here we see that Jesus freely endured his anguish so that we could endure our unchosen anguish. The ones that we don't want, didn't choose, would not wish on anybody. Jesus said, Father, if you will, let it pass. And God said, I won't. But that I won't was not God's final word because Jesus was anointed for burial. He had come to give his life as a ransom for many, to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And because of that redemptive plan, God says to him, I won't, so that he can say to you, I will. I won't spare you pain, all of you. I God says to you, I won't spare you pain. I will redeem your pain. I won't spare you tears. I will dry them. I may not even spare you death, but I will raise you from the dead. Let me invite the pastors and the worship team and the deacons to come, and let's pray as they do. Father, Gethsemane is dark. It's the darkest of the dark, that em emotional agony on the way. And what an encouragement it is to see that Jesus did not endure it like a stoic, with no trouble, no distress, no anguish, no sorrow, but just floating through it. He knows, he knows, you know, Jesus, what it's like to be us and to fear future pain. So help us, meet us now at this table in our pain and in our sorrow and in our sadness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the pastors come around, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.